Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from Los Angeles. Episode nine, the only one, part two. This episode's a follow-up to last week, and well, I think this episode will make sense on its own. If you haven't checked out episode eight yet, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, last week's episode was a great starting point for this smog conversation. So the smog, as you've probably heard us mention before, is kind of all the ways we talk about schools, often without really examining what's underlying these statements. So I don't want my kid to be the only one white kid in a global majority school is one of those things we hear as a reason to avoid sending your kid to that school down the block or across town. Mm-hmm. And just to be clear, we use the only one air quotes, as a bit of shorthand for being one of a very small number of kids who look like you. Sometimes this is actually being a single white kid in an entire grade or class. And sometimes this is a small handful of kids who don't look like the vast majority of the rest of the class grades or school population. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think there are some differences between being literally the only one and being one of a small handful. But I think those differences really pale in comparison to the difference between being sort of significantly in the minority or not. And, you know, I think that's the experience that has real power, especially for white kids. Yeah. I think it's also the thing that makes people uncomfortable. I don't, I don't know if there's like a clean cutoff, like a line that you could say this counts as only one or not. These things rarely play out so neat. But, you know, I, I think we're talking single digit percentages of kids who look like your kid. Yeah. So last week we talked about what that experience can actually be like for some white parents when we talked with Lauren and, you know, there's some challenges, but not always where you expect them. And there are also benefits to be found in those, those spaces as well. And sometimes really problematic benefits too. Yeah. And this week we're going to try to tackle the same subject, but from sort of two different viewpoints. So one from the experience of adults who were the only one looking back on what the experience was like, but also getting into the difference between being the only white kid in a global majority school and being the only kid of color in a predominantly white school. These are two stories that we're going to tell mine and my friend Aaron's. And I think there's a lot to learn, but clearly these are just two of many stories. Yeah. So Andrew, tell us a little bit about Aaron and how this conversation came to happen. Yeah. So Aaron's a a good friend of mine from high school. We've sort of stayed in touch over the years. We see each other maybe a couple of times a year. And we recently went out for coffee and she mentioned that she had been listening to the podcast and got into a conversation sort of about both of our school experiences. You know, I was one of a small handful of white kids at my elementary school. She was one of a small handful of black kids at hers. And despite, geez, like 25 years of friendship. You're so old. I know. It's crazy. (laughs) We just hadn't talked about it in any sort of meaningful way, what that experience was like for us. So over the course of the conversation, I was just struck by how many of the things we talk about here at Integrated Schools that came up. But but her perspective on it was just very unique. And so I told her she should come on the podcast. I think she thought I was joking. And then I texted her and I said, <laughs> hey, when can we record? And she was like, oh, you were serious about that? <laughs> so she agreed to come over and we sat down and had a conversation. She was very gracious to give her time and to share so freely. So big thanks to Aaron for being willing to do that. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. This, um, this is a great conversation and it was really fascinating to hear the perspective that you both have now that you're adults. Um, and I really appreciated how candid and honest Aaron was about the ways that your experiences were really different from hers because of race, right? Yeah. It's a perspective we can't get from a white person, but that we white people need to hear. For sure. Let's hear the conversation.
very thrilled to be joined by my good friend Aaron in the uh, Integrated Schools podcasting headquarters, aka my basement. <laughs> um, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Aaron. I'm your friend. I'm from here in Denver. Um, so this this episode is about being the only one, and we've talked a bit about being the only white kid. But we recognize that being the only white kid is not the same experience as being the only person of color. And it's not as ubiquitous an experience as yes. being the only person of color. That's right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your like schooling experience, what your schools looked like um, along the way? Okay. I am from first grade through fifth grade. I was in private schools. Literally, it was called a country day school. Um, so it was... <laughs> it was um, much more kind of hoity-toity. Um, it was literally me and one other black girl named Erin. Um, <laughs> and so from fourth grade on, I can name the black kids in my class because there were so few of us. Right. So to this day, I remember them because we we were a team. <laughs> right. And we were the only ones. Yeah. Right. So I went to a very diverse middle school and high school. I'll start with middle school. It's very racially diverse um, in the middle of a diverse residential neighborhood. But I was segregated within the school because I was in the gifted and talented program. Right. So I've heard in some of your other podcast episodes about you talking about tracking and kind of yep. that whole thing. Well, I'm, I'm the poster child for that. It was interesting because then in middle school, that was when all of the black and Latino kids, we were a group of friends together. So that was interesting because I was not the only one, but I still felt set apart within that group because then it got more into class divides. I had come from these private schools. I was starting to play soccer where I was definitely the only one. But that didn't make me uncomfortable because it's something that I got used to. But then when I was in middle school and I was in this class with more Black and Latino students, they looked at me differently because of the, the experiences that I had had and the family that I came from and the way that I speak. It's something that I would learn later in my life is fairly common in the Black community, which is that I was labeled as someone who was acting white. Right. And I remember coming home from school crying to my mom because I was so confused because I was like, I didn't change. I've been me. <laughs> Here I am. I'm going but through But somehow the people around me are reflecting me differently <laughs> right. and are describing me differently and not as I feel. Honestly, to that point, race hadn't come up. So although I was the only one in situations... It didn't make me at that point feel my blackness as a child. I was just living my life. I didn't know anything yeah, different. That's the, that's the only school you've been to. That's what school is like, and you just go through it. Exactly. exactly. And so, now you're doing the exact same thing in school, and all of a sudden it doesn't register with the, your peers in the same way. Right. And so that gave me quite a complex for, honestly, until I got to college, where I just didn't understand where I fit racially. I look one way. I know I'm a black person. I know I come from a black family. I would actually have people ask me, are both your parents black? <laughs> they would ask me that because they just figured somehow, like you wouldn't speak this way. You wouldn't act this way. Right, <laughs> Otherwise. Right. And, now, but, I mean, you don't, you don't look like 
mixed race. Not at all. Right. <laughs> Not at right. all. Yeah. Right. No. But right. Oh, so just like socially, people are like, well, something must be good. Something. You yes. must have some white in you somewhere. Yes. Yes. Wow. And so that was very confusing. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I was trying to figure out how I fit in this more diverse school. And so, yeah, I kind of had an identity crisis. My mother is an attorney. My stepfather is an attorney. My father has an MBA, went from being a businessman to being um, an educator for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather and great-grandfather were doctors in the Midwest. My grandfather was, he, didn't get, he wasn't the only one, he was one of two, because back then, when you go to medical school, they will admit black people in even numbers so that they can have a buddy. No way. Yeah. So, <laughs> wow. because you weren't allowed to interact with the other white students right. in the cafeteria, you couldn't live with them in the dorms. So you get your buddy. So well, at least you have somebody. At that least you, you can have talk somebody, to. and it's just because they're black, you're going to be best friends right. now. And so that was kind of the experience I was having in middle school was trying to understand like what does it mean to be black? Is it that you look black? It's apparently how you act. But then high school. Also, a very diverse, amazing school, but there the tracking thing comes in again because all of my core classes were accelerated in AP courses, so I was kind of in this segregated space within an integrated school again. So there... I can also name the, I won't name them here, but the, there were two black male students who also, who along with me, we were the three. And I, I, I know for a fact that a lot of the other black students, it's not that they couldn't excel in those courses. It's that their friends weren't in those courses. Right. And so it became that social piece again about, do you want to step away from your race? to take these courses. So that's what was happening where I came from a background where I'm supposed to achieve as much as I can and whoever's there is there. That's not my problem. But I recognize that for a lot of black students, yes, they could be excelling in these courses, but are actively choosing not to. It could be a combination of not wanting to leave a peer group and or not wanting to have that label of them on them that I had right. in middle school of acting white by taking those courses. Yeah. I came from the unique home situation where that is the expectation right. in my home. My grandmother, she was fluent in French and Latin, <laughs> graduated Phi Beta Kappa yeah. from a top liberal arts university. You know, just not typical. Yeah. Right. Not typical for anybody. For anyone right. of yeah, any race, race at any right. time. Right. Yeah, I have a family right. who also not typical for any family of any race is from the end of the Civil War as, and as soon as blacks were allowed to go to integrated colleges, every generation in my family has done so. That makes me realize how, what an anomaly my family is. So I've had to reconcile, you know, the background that I actually have with kind of what the expectation is yeah, yeah, out yeah. in society for what it's supposed to be. But given all that, given my family's history, given what I've done, so I went from that public high school to the Ivy League. Right. And have since gone on to have a successful career, earn a master's degree, earn a law degree. And so I'm very proud of that high school and I'm very proud of my family and, and all that I've accomplished. But I also recognize that 
It's not typical. It's not typical. And what I've had to do over this time is reconcile who I am, what I'm capable of. Something I learned in college and after college finally was, oh, there are lots of different ways to be a black person. There Mm. are lots of different black people. Yes. Being black, quote unquote black, is not a monolithic experience. Right. (laughs) And learning that was huge for me. It was freeing for me. Right. And we never, like, that's not ever part of the conversation about white kids. We assume that there are many ways to be a white kid. Right. We assume that white kids will do, will go to the Ivy League and will work in a gas station and will do everything in between. And we assume that the, the range of options for white kids is nearly infinite. And we don't do the same thing with black kids. Well, and somehow, by definition, white people are deemed to be high achieving unless they prove otherwise. Yes. And being a black person, it's the inverse. Being a black person... It's assumed that you can't do until you somehow prove that you can. And we've seen that even if you achieve on all of the metrics that white society tells you is what we want to see from you, it's still not good enough. Right. And so, you know, I come from the family background that I have. I've achieved all that I have. Yet still, I walk into spaces in every school I've gone to. I know that people are looking at me assuming that I didn't, I don't deserve to be there. I I find myself often leading with my resume Mm. when I'm around white men in particular, older white men in particular. And I am, I'm a real estate attorney. So I'm around (laughs) older white men all the time. And um, I do, I, I feel that I have to lead with my credentials so that I can earn my place to stay in the room so that they will listen to the words coming out of my mouth. So my mother grew up in Indianapolis and she was also in the same types of classes that I was in the same types of public schools in the inner city that I was. But the social arrangement that she grew up in was very different than mine. So my mom grew up in a very nice house in a mixed income, predominantly black neighborhood. So she grew up around other black kids. So she was socialized that way. Um, But then while she was in high school, and that's in the early 70s or late 60s, she had an integrated experience at school, but again, was socialized around other black students. So she didn't go through the kind of identity crisis that I did because I grew up in a predominantly white setting. Right. So I, not only in school, but as I went home, was always the only one. I got very used to being the only one. Yeah, like you grew up in a mostly white space. Your mom was then one of the only ones. I mean, professionally, she's probably often yep. one of the only ones. Like, when did she get used to that? When did she sort of, and maybe, I mean, maybe it comes from your grandfather even, like to, to be a successful doctor in that town, you mm-hmm. probably had to have some comfort in largely white spaces to go to med school with your one black buddy. You got used to this. Like, I feel like you've got like generations right. of <laughs> comfort in all white spaces of being the only one that, that are, was sort of like passed on to you. But So it's interesting that you go through the generations that way, because what I'm realizing has filtered down to me is that we, we've all been comfortable in predominantly white spaces, but have also created all black spaces for ourselves to kind of 
let her hair down, yeah, so to speak. I don't see anything strange in that. I had an interesting conversation with one of my white coworkers before I came here. I was explaining what we were going to talk about, and she t- talked about going to see the movie Black Panther. Oh, yeah. And, ha- and I was like, where's this going? I'm afraid of Be careful, be she careful. Said, Sometimes I'm too blunt, and I, don't, and I was like, oh, no, what's about to happen? But, <laughs> we have to work together tomorrow. <laughs> but it was actually really sweet. She said that... Um, being in that theater and watching that movie was the first time in her life, and this is a woman with grown adult children, she said it was the first time in her life that she felt her whiteness. Mm. Mm. And I said, well, that's interesting because there's not a day that goes by that I don't feel my blackness. Mm. And I, I mean, maybe that is sort of the crux of the difference between being the only white kid in a global majority school and being the only black kid in a nearly all white school. So, so I was one of only a handful of white kids mm-hmm. in my elementary school. And like, I vividly remember experiences of sort of feeling my whiteness from that young age. Interesting. But that was from, you know, eight to three. And then I would leave and the rest of the world is white. Right. The rest of the world is set up. You and blend back in. I and, blend right back in. And yeah. e- I mean, even the school is still largely set up around, set up to accommodate me. The way that schools work, the way that society work works is largely like set up to accommodate a white person and all of their sort of cultural baggage that goes with them. They sort of walk through the world. As a white man, I walk through the world, a world that is designed for me. Right. And And where the expectations of everyone else is to aspire to be that as well. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so even in the school that in the building and sort of socially, I was an outlier, still like the structure of the school was still largely set up to accommodate me more than some of my friends. But that experience was still super powerful and meaningful Mm -hmm. to me and gave me an insight, you know, a tiny sliver of insight into the experience of being a minority at five instead of 55, like the lady who goes to see Black Panther for the first time, right? But what's interesting in what I just heard you say is that this was an empowering experience for you. It totally was. And that's not true on my side. Right. I think because you kind of get that energy from being out in the world and and how it's already set up for you, you go to school and it's like this study and you're like, this is kind of exciting. And because you're still coming from that privileged space into this space where, yeah, you know you're a minority for these few hours, but society's not going to view you as a minority. Society's not going to look down on you. And even when you are the minority in this school, you're not viewed as less than. Right. You just happen to be a different color than the majority yeah. population in that school. Totally. I didn't have the same appreciation for the benefits of it in the moment sure. that I have now. This is now. your hindsight. You know, yeah. right. In hindsight, I'm like super grateful for the experience. There were definitely times where it was hard, but those hard bits were largely sort of social pieces. And like you said, they were, they were time limited and they did not impart on me a sense of inferiority because the people in charge, the power structures were still set up to accommodate me. Right. And that's the, I think the big difference obviously is that, you know, as I'm saying that, yes, I had a unique experience being one of the only ones in the classes where I wasn't made to feel inferior by the teachers when I was in those classes, because I fortunately had a home life that made it so that I felt entitled to be there. Right. But that, 
does it track through the other aspects of my life the way that it may have for you when you're just out and about outside of your family. Yes. So, and to this day, I know I belong in these spaces. I know I belong in the boardroom. I know that I belonged in the classrooms where I was. Even though I felt strongly in my person that I belonged there, I knew that people around me were looking at me as though I didn't. That is ever-present. Oh, yeah. Your family history, your family story is like an incredibly inspiring one. But I think it also like the fact that you felt entitled to those spaces took every generation since slavery (laughs) to to give you that, right? Like it was not easily earned that sense that you needed to then go in and like claim what was yours in that space required generations and generations and generations of other people feeling like I'm going to claim what's mine and I'm going to get it for my kids too against all odds. Whereas like I walk into that classroom, it's like, well, probably, you know I mean? If he wants to go to Ivy League, he can go to Ivy League. Sure, of course. Yeah. Yeah. He's a white man. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate that point because I hadn't thought of it in those particular terms, but that's exactly right. And so, yeah. So then when we look at other families and we're like, why aren't you doing this? I mean, some people just don't think there are structural barriers to anything. Why should we have a society where that's what's required, where you have to go so far above and beyond individually right. and everything has to go right for you? To be able to make it for yourself and then keep going. Obviously, I was in a positive cycle in my family. Yeah, There are negative cycles in other families. Those cycles are impacting people. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, you're right. It took all of those individual generations doing these things and making these choices to get to me to be able to, yeah, claim these spaces as my own, yet still in those moments feeling like I have to prove myself. Right. It's still not easy. You know, every black child is taught to work twice as hard to get half as far. Right. How is that okay? Are we okay with that? We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. So, all right. So, uh, let's go back to elementary school a little bit. So you, you were, you were the only one, but it was not, not like a particularly uncomfortable experience for you to be the only one. It was actually in some ways easier to be the only one in that environment because the, the sort of things that differentiated race in that point were more social cues about sort of academics and whatever that you fit comfortably into the more white space of, of your elementary school. I did in terms of how the school was structured. There were definitely times, there were two particular instances I can recall of socially being racialized um, and demeaned for my race. One was a white girl in first or second grade looking at my hands and telling me that I was dirty. Mm. The other was in middle school when I had the group of black and Latino quote unquote friends. Cause I look back and I'm like, well, they really were, did not have <laughs> How my friends back were they, anyway. Right? Yeah. Um, where they started teasing me on a class trip saying that I didn't want to wash my face because I'd be afraid to wash the, the black off. Wow. Like I just put it on for the day, but I wasn't really to my core, a black person. Right. Um, What's interesting, I think, about what you've said about 
your experience in elementary school was that you, in a lot of ways, as a white man, were more socialized to be comfortable in black spaces than I was. Yeah, that's crazy. But as I've gotten older and more assured of myself and been around more people, now I'm comfortable wherever I go. Right. What are the benefits of having been the only one? You you were you were going to end up being in a white supremacy culture no matter what. Right. Did you get benefits that now are sort of paying dividends from that experience of being in all white so. spaces? I think so in that I do come in with that feeling of, yes, I belong here. I, I know how to be myself mm-hmm. in those spaces without feeling that I'm fully changing who I am. I mean, we all code switch to a degree, but but it's stronger for some than others. Or the other code feels more foreign to some right, people. Right, right. So yeah, and it is like learning a foreign language and it's yeah. like I have the code to that. Like I, I know how to be in an all white space. But there are some debates about that now in terms of the idea of like respectability politics. And you'll hear some people say, I'm like, I'm just not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to play that game. Right. So for me, it doesn't feel like playing a game right? because it's just something that I've always been around. And so, like I said, it's that I'm comfortable in that space and I don't have to change myself. Yeah. Your, yourself includes that piece. It includes it. That comes from being the only one in elementary school. That also comes from generations of ability to code switch that like the code switching doesn't feel like abandoning your history exactly. or your or your nature because it is part of who who your sort of family has always exactly. been. Exactly. So I am comfortable operating in a predominantly white world. I feel that I can still be myself. That said, the feelings of being a black person are consistent for all of us. When I watch a movie about slavery and a slave is whipped, I flinch like it's happening to me. It's not a disconnected feeling to me. It's very visceral. Same with brutality against black men that we see on the news and these things like that. And when President Obama said, you know, that could have been my son. And, you know, he he got backlash from in some circles for that. And I'm like, no, that's how it feels. No matter what we achieve in this society, we're trying to play by the rules that are set up for us to, to be what is objectively achievement and accomplishment. And it's still never enough. You're still, can, at the end of the day, can be looked at as a black person, which comes with all of this extra baggage. Right. And it's painful. I mean, you're you're feeling... Your humanity is being drained from you. But going back to your original question, I do feel that... So yes, as a black person being the only one in white spaces, it's beneficial as you're older because you're going to be in predominantly white spaces. Right. What did that do for you as the white minority in the black spaces? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, my sort of professional career is not typical. It it did actually benefit me professionally because I ended up on tour with a band of seven black men. And, you know, most of that time it was the eight of us. And, you know, we were driving through a van in West Virginia and people were like, son, everything all right. (laughs) Have Uh, you been kidnapped? (laughs) I mean, I remember having a, having a conversation with 
with one of the guys from the band. I had been with them for maybe six or eight months or something. Like, it, this is a little weird. Like, it s- seems surprising to us that, like, a white dude from Denver, <laughs> it, like, it feels comfortable in this environment, sort of what's going on. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, like, that is clearly a direct link to my experience in, in elementary school. But so that's so telling for both of us, the fact that you're viewing integration in an elementary school as a key element to a human being's development, to a human being's ability to operate successfully in society as an adult. That's really powerful. That's, I mean, that's clear. There, there are clear through lines there, right? That, right. And as we're talking about this, I do view it as learning a foreign language, understanding, you know, cultural mores and those types yeah. of things. And so, and obviously it's better to learn those things early, right? Right. When you just are a sponge and you take it all in and you're not judging those things and yeah. you're just are experiencing it and you just are being who you are and that sticks with you. I mean, I think, you know, my, my professional career is not typical. So like no. most white people could go through life without ever having that experience and still succeed professionally in, in this society. Although I would argue that my kids, the world that they will and the workforce they will enter not being comfortable in integrated ex- spaces will be a detriment to them. And I agree with that wholeheartedly to me. Part of childhood is about learning, having these experiences as a child, but it's about thickening your skin too. It's about being hurt. It's about being confused. And I I mean, I think it's also about like finding that humanity and somebody who's not like you. It's about finding that sort of thread of, of shared humanity. And once you have that, it stays with you. Yeah. If you never get it, you're not just, you're not going to learn it later in your life. Right. I mean... A few people will, but yeah, the probability is much less. <laughs> yes, you can't that, take an old, teach an old dog new tricks. Exactly, right. and so you're just going to dig in more. And so, and as much as we talk about how you know d- divided and and stratified the society is, and people can't talk to each other anymore, to me, like if we embed these things early, right. Because I keep fr- being frustrated by this huge empathy deficit that I see. But to me, like your experience in elementary school is what helped build empathy in you Yeah. for other people. To be able to walk in other shoes because you were right there with them. So that it doesn't feel like the other. It's just people. So I mean, it sounds like there, there are benefits to being the only one. But I think had you not had your only one experience, you still would have had the opportunity to find shared humanity in a way that I would not. I think that's fair. The experience of being a black person is always feeling like the other. Right. And so if you come from that space already, you're not as quick to otherize someone else. You have created a successful life. You have achieved many things. You are in many ways an outlier. Yeah. And in some ways to do that required you to become comfortable in white spaces. And I wonder what, like, like what's lost to our society 
like it's hard it's hard to point to successful people of color who have not mastered that fair and i wonder what's lost by creating a system whereby you have to figure out how to adapt to our world right. in order to be successful right what we lose is the fact that we have established a default that is whiteness right what we i know that going into college i used to get frustrated i was like why are white people just white people and everybody else is some version of a qualified american somebody everybody else is an african american mexican american right. chinese american but the the default american is a white person you get to just be american yeah. and all the rest of us are some specialized form of that right and so it's basically either you play this game on the white people's terms or you're choosing to be marginalized. Not that you've chosen to be yourself and that that should be accepted in the society. Right. That, you're that we should make space for you to be yourself yeah, rather than for that, you to be like me. Right. So I don't know. I mean, I think, I think a lot about the, the work of integrated schools and the generational nature of it mm-hmm. that you know, the society that we live in today, the way that it is set up, the structures that we are fighting against are, are not structures that we built last week, right? The society works the way that it was designed to work. This has been a long, a long road. So we're not going to get out of it overnight. I think I've said that probably a thousand times on the podcast, but it, it, it seems to me like the potential for progress is found in finding shared humanity is found in the experience of being with people who are not like you and recognizing your shared humanity, because then you are more able to create spaces for people to be themselves. You know, I think, I think it's a long ways to go before the power structures in the country reflect that. I think about like Nicole Hannah Jones, who basically just like, this is, never going to be solved she's like here very clearly like these are the problems but like it's never gonna be solved and she has like very little confidence in in white people to do anything different um chris stewart from episode five same way Mm -hmm. and and i like i think that's fully justified i feel like but to sit back and accept it feels unacceptable to me and maybe it feels unacceptable to me because i had the experience of finding some shared humanity right it feels like the more kids we can give that experience to, the more likely that the next generation and the generation after that are going to be able to create structures and systems that are more accommodating of difference. Idealistically, I agree with you. <laughs> right. I'm also a pragmatist. So one thing is that in our current political climate, to me, the piece that is lacking is recognition of shared humanity. Yeah. Yes, if you view other people by a status rather than as a person, if you don't see that given a certain set of circumstances, you too could be homeless on the street. If you don't see that these are human beings that you are denigrating and marginalizing, then it's very easy to get to that next step where you just say, well, those are bad people. Right. Being wealthy means you're a good person and did good things, and being poor means you're a bad person and you did you didn't the work wrong for it. things, right. right? And that binary feels very simple if you don't recognize the complexity of 
humanity, right? Yep. So yes, I like I the vision that you've presented <laughs> of the world you'd like to see, I'd love to see that too. Um, I think it's so important because I'm afraid that we're getting to a place where we're creating fewer and fewer shared spaces, fewer and fewer integrated yes. spaces. We're getting to this place where you can spe- specialize everything. Yeah. And I, I worry about the schools in that I'm like, really? We have specialized science and technology schools for second graders? Like, why <laughs> <Right>. are we <laughs> specializing children right. in second grade? For us to now be like, well, you can go to this kind of school and you get taught at home and you get... The, and I, to me, that was the ideal of the shared space was your neighborhood public school. So, Gordy. What did you think? So, uh, yeah, I think that most of our listeners are not surprised that the experiences of being an only one black student are different from being an only one white student and probably different even still from being an only one Asian student or only one Latinx student or only one student coming into the classroom speaking a language other than English or only one biracial student. Right. right? These are unique positions and to the extent that they're generalizable, they surely come with different sets of challenges. Yeah. That being said, Andrew, I really appreciated hearing Erin share hers. And I was especially moved by the challenge of her experience in middle school, since that was kind of where my family felt the shifts in racial identity building so profoundly. Yeah, indeed. And I think I think middle and high school experiences is probably worth a, its own episode at some point. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I do think, you know, as I think you said in episode eight, Courtney, you know, even if the demographics of the school don't change, the way that kids respond to race does. Mm-hmm. And I know there's some good research out there on that phenomenon and why that happens. I'm definitely not up to speed on it. So maybe we'll do a little bit of homework, find somebody to bring on the podcast to enlighten us all. Because I think it's important, you know, the, the struggles definitely take on a more potent form as we get older. And hearing how Aaron had to grapple with things that I just didn't was really important. Yeah, and I think this kind of speaks again to the fact that white people really need to be the ones doing the work of integrating. Yeah, I mean, I think if there is something generalizable here, it's it's the importance of realizing that the experience for the only one white kid takes place in a white-centered culture. Yeah. You know, so so just like your son realized that all the other kids got qualifiers, you know, the Asian kid, the Mexican, the black kid, and he was just the kid, Aaron vividly remembers you know, the moment when she realized there were African-Americans and Japanese-Americans and, but the, you know, the default, the just plain American referred to white people. Yeah. And, and as y'all said, like being the only one white kid was in many ways really empowering for you, Andrew, in a way that it yeah. wasn't for Aaron. And that's really, I think the key to changing the the kind of smoggy playground conversations. Because when white parents worry about their kid being the only one white kid, There's a lot more to that story. Yeah. So this is going to be our last episode of the year. We're going to take a few weeks off over the holidays and looking to return somewhere maybe the end of January. But before we go, Courtney, some some thoughts. What do you think of the podcast so far? I am amazed. I'm shocked and I'm humbled by the reach, right? Like this is growing a lot faster and 
larger than we expected, which it which is great. Like to me, knowing that there are people out there who are wanting to have these conversations is really exciting to me. Yeah, I don't I don't know if we're always doing these conversations right. I, in fact, I'm certain we we aren't. <laughs> I'm sure we're I'm not. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that like the list of things we've done wrong is is incredibly long. But but just knowing that there's an appetite for these conversations is really really exciting. Yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not really sure what I expected, but there there are a lot of you out there listening and we're excited by that. Yeah. You know, we continue to be somewhat terrified by that. But, <laughs> but mostly I, I think we're, we're grateful. We're grateful to you for listening. We're grateful to you for engaging in these hard topics and we're grateful for your feedback. You know, we get it on Facebook, we get it on Twitter and, and we're really grateful that people seem to be sharing it with their friends. So thank you for that. Yeah. And before we go, how about let's play one more voice memo. I love these. Yeah. These are so great. Um, this one comes from Allie in Seattle. Hello, my name is Allie. I am a white parent sending my kids to a global majority school in Seattle. I sent them to this school, switching from a mostly white school because I felt it was important to live our values. I love what they're learning at the school and I love what I'm learning at the school as well. Thank you, Allie. So while we're away, let us know. What did you think of this first set of episodes? What worked? What didn't? What do you want to hear more of when we come back? What do you want us to stop doing immediately so you don't <laughs> drive off the road when you're listening to this? In anger. Send us your voice memos. Hello at integratedschools.org. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook at Integrated Schools. And if you're enjoying these episodes, consider going to our website, integratedschools.org, and making a donation. We're an all-volunteer organization. We've got growing costs, podcasting, a new website, our parent-to-parent program, the two-tour pledge, our privilege video. All of these things take time and resources, so anything you can give would be awesome. We'd be really grateful. Yep. And thanks to you, Andrew, for making this podcast possible. It's been really, really lovely working with you. Not always, but mostly. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Mostly. And thanks to you, Courtney, for all you do for Integrated Schools and for this podcast. It really has been fun working on this with you. Thanks to everyone. It means a lot. And um, I'm just really happy to be in this with you all as we try to know better and do better. Indeed. See you next year.